0: Washington Capitals are the 2018 Stanley Cup champions. It's not a dream. It's not a desert mirage. It's Lord Stanley.
1: And he is coming to Washington.
0: Welcome back to Jay for Shrink Radio. I'm your host, Greg Young, and today we have a new guest, someone who has not only not been on Jay for Frink Radio before, but I think is also, if I'm not mistaken, uh Jack, relatively new to uh hockey analytics in general. So uh we are joined today by uh Jack, uh, also known as Jay Fresh on Twitter. So Jack, how are you doing today?
1: I'm not doing too bad. And uh yeah, no, I'm definitely a little green compared to uh some of the other analytics people you've had on. So, so I appreciate you uh, indulging me here.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you've, uh, you've pretty much talked about uh, every major, a, at least done one deep dive in every major player from the metropolitan division, except for the Washington Catholics. Uh So we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. I would imagine, uh, even though you're a Penguins fan, you probably have one coming up soon, but uh, I guess before we kind of go into that, just kind of give a, give a, give a little bit of a background of your kind of interest and kind of introduction into hockey and hockey analytics and kind of where you feel like you fit in kind of in the broader hockey framework?
1: Right sure. Yeah. So I, I come to hockey analytics, I think more from the hockey side from the, than the analytics side. Uh, unlike, I think a lot of the people that you've probably had in the past on to talk about analytics and a lot of people who are kind of recognizable on Twitter or other areas of the hockey media for their kind of model building. I don't have that kind of hard stats background. I don't have that kind of model building expertise. Uh, I kind of come at it more from the, you know, I guess communication sounds kind of wishy washy, but I I have a a huge interest in analytics and kind of bringing an analytical perspective to hockey analysis and writing Uh, and I do it kind of more from that perspective of trying to maybe bridge the chasm between sometimes what the outputs of models might be and what might be considered, you know, popular opinion or general perception or, or what you might call the eye test uh, as it were. But uh, yeah, so, so I think that the, the perspective that I kind of try to bring is, you know, I want to take this stuff that I find interesting and maybe communicate it in a way that the layman might be able to get some value out of. Uh, and, and increasingly in a way that can be kind of directly connected to what people might see on the ice. And so I think that's kind of tracked as I've moved from kind of just visualizing data and, and, and models to kind of maybe writing a little bit more and doing a little bit more of kind of a deep dive involving game tape and stuff like that, uh, to the point that now, you know, the, the the place that I kind of would like to be situated, I don't know if 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 it's the truth, but Uh, is kind of as maybe an an intermediary a little bit between maybe the hard kind of you know peer-reviewed style uh, hockey uh, analytics person and kind of maybe a person who might be able to uh, to speak in kind of the I've almost failed math in high school language that I think a lot of hockey fans generally prefer
0: yeah I I think it's interesting as a kind of from my perspective as a podcast host who also dabbles in uh what I guess I'll call the dark arts of analytics, but also couldn't build a model even if you had a gun to my head in five hours to try to do it. Um, I think it, it's interesting to kind of hear you talk about that because I think just as a, as a podcast host and kind of as a, as a hockey person, I find myself doing that same thing too of trying to, you know, balance all of these different inputs and outputs. And I guess one thing I'm kind of curious is, in is you've written now quite a few player deep dives. And you, one of the things that you do that I really find interesting, and one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on is that you balance a lot of different data sources, and I think you do it in a really interesting way. So I guess kind of take us into your process a little bit, particularly as you do these player deep dives. Kind of how is your process, and how do you try to balance the vastly different and uh, different looking sources of information that you're that you're uh, inputting?
1: Sure. The uh... So I I think a thing that people will often say, and and a lot of the time it's kind of in bad faith, is that, you know, the stuff that we have available to us kind of as members of the public is just so limited and so small in scope and so useless compared to what's privately available. And I think you'll often hear that come from people who, you know, they don't really have an understanding of what's privately available. They just say it because it's kind of a way to dismiss what somebody's telling you that disagrees with your opinion. Uh, The fact of the matter is that there's a lot that's out there uh, there's a lot of hard work that people have done uh, from the model builders like like Micah uh, and uh, and the Evolving Wild Twins to uh, stat collectors uh, and, and trackers like Corey Schneider who have put in just countless hours creating these kind of incredible databases and resources that are publicly available to us uh, at very reasonable rates with, with just kind of small monthly Patreon donations. Uh, and And I wanna take full advantage of that. And I think when I kind of see all this data available in, in almost every case that I can think of where I've sat down to do a deep dive, I've had the data available that I kind of need to connect those dots between the outputs of maybe a model and the eye test. Like I still haven't kind of stumbled on a player that's totally bamboozled me in terms of, I can't reconcile what's going on. And a big reason for that is that we have such diverse data sources. I mean, Corey's work just to, to single him out has been just so invaluable in terms of, you know, when when, so like you said, when I'm kind of sitting down with the intention of building a player breakdown, mainly what I'm trying to do is take the outputs of a, a model. Usually, it's, it's the twins model. Their wins above replacement or their RIPM, and I'm trying to explain how that, how those results came to be. And part of that uh, is inevitably going to come from watching games and stuff. But a huge part of it comes from looking through Corey's data, that manually tracked data on zone entries and exits and forechecking and passing and stuff like that which is just such a spectacular data source and just so rich in terms of the depth and detail and comparability and, and and everything and it's been so well put together that it really would be kind of a waste to not really put it to its full potential and so in a lot of cases like for instance you know if i'm writing a piece on you know let's say a player that uh, capital stands should be at least familiar with how he looks like when he's been elbowed in the head uh, Zach and reese and I'm trying to figure out how his, uh, his numbers uh, defensively are so strong. Uh, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to look, first of all, I'm going to deep dive into uh, what Evolving Wild's model says, uh, compare it maybe to what Micah's model says, see if there's any differences. But the first thing I'm going to do after that is I'm going to dive into Corey's stuff because uh, I can see, you know, does he carry the puck out of the zone a lot? No, he doesn't really seem to do that, which makes sense because he doesn't have puck skills. But what I can see, oh, he's one of the Penguins' best four checkers. And he actually is one of the league's best four checkers. And he uh, puts a lot of pressure on defensemen, uh, but he also retrieves pucks at a really high rate. And then I watched the game and I realized, oh, he's actually, that is why his defensive numbers are so good, is because he's recovering the puck in the offensive zone, pinning it against the board, just wasting plenty of time And that means that the puck isn't in his end. And that means that pucks aren't going towards his goalie. And that means that he's not, his goalie isn't facing a lot of shots. So it really is kind of that process where a lot of the time watching the games will kind of be the last thing that I do to try to put the puzzle pieces together. Uh, uh, But one thing I do want to kind of emphasize is that I, I also, as much as possible, try to come to these pieces from a position of kind of humility, because I, as anybody who had watched me play during my intramural (laughs) or beer league career before I even got canceled, I am not a brilliant hockey tactician and and should not be uh, considered such by anybody, which means that I I am fortunate enough to have the opportunity to talk to people who are actually good in that regard. So I, I have the luxury of being able to, you know, shoot a DM to, you know, Jack Hahn, Uh, who's a skills development coach, former assistant coach for the Marlies, uh, or even, you know, Patrick O'Sullivan, a former NHL player, and just, you know, show them a clip and be like, hey, what the hell's going on here? What's your thought on this? What's your thought on this player? And almost every time I'll get something back that is just so specific and so technical that, you know, if I had recognized it myself, I would be a much better hockey player. You know, (laughs) it'll be something in like, oh, like, it's because his skate blade is curved like this that he's not able to get a handle on the puck. Or, oh, yeah, his T-pose in the defensive zone is reducing his agility or whatever. All kinds of things that I wouldn't have recognized in a million years. So it really yeah. is kind of about getting as much stuff in front of you as possible so you can try to build out a strong narrative.
0: So one thing, one thing that you talked about, because I think it's, it's an interesting contrast to another player piece that you wrote that I want to talk a lot about, is You were talking a little bit about kind of a player and maybe some of the smaller things that they'll do to really influence the game that is going to be hard to see. You talk about Zach Aston-Reese, who, once you mention it, then it's kind of hard to not notice it. But kind of the inverse of that is a player like Seth Jones, who you wrote a lot about. And you kind of talked a little bit about exactly what he does that is noticeable, but maybe doesn't help a little bit of, his team win games, and I'm kind of curious, can you dive in and kind of explain what Seth Jones does that maybe doesn't, you know, that it is showy, but maybe doesn't necessarily help his team, and kind of, can you kind of balance maybe maybe that other factor too?
1: Sure, so I guess the background on that is that kind of maybe the hottest take that I've been raked over the coals for, uh, other than daring that any Canadian team might miss the playoffs in that division. <laughs> Is that I don't consider Seth Jones to be one of the best defensemen in the league, uh, which especially kind of after that playoffs is, is a pretty iconoclastic position to take, particularly uh, given
0: all the minutes that he played and again all the minutes you know yeah. and 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 he
1: and he like looked great in the playoffs like you know you're watching him and he's doing plenty of stuff but that's kind of part of the thing so I guess the background uh, is you know the same way that I kind of said before how I approach it is that kind of any way you cut it Seth Jones's underlying numbers in the past couple of years in terms of how he impacts the Jackets preventing scoring chances or generating scoring chances is pretty middle of the road. And like I say, in, in the book, you know, middle of the road is the last way that you would describe Seth Jones from watching him. Like he is, you know, for better or for worse, like he is absolutely not average or unremarkable.
0: He's a very dynamic way. player in all things. He's
1: a dynamic player. Like if, if you were, if we had an analytic that was like commentator mentions, Seth Jones would be like the top player in the league because he's always doing stuff, especially in that leaf series. I mean, like the commentators could not stop themselves from mentioning Seth Jones every five seconds and you can't really blame him. Uh, A lot of the time when we talk about eye test opinions, especially of players who don't play for your team, a lot of the time it's going to be heavily reputation based. Uh, Maybe it's based on things like points or, or even time on ice and stuff like that. But I think Seth Jones is kind of, a special case where the where the eye test thing is in total good faith, like if you're watching Seth Jones play, you will think he's an elite defenseman, and you're totally justified in that. And I am not going to hold anybody, you know, or begrudge anybody thinking that Seth Jones is an elite defenseman from watching him. the The thing is, and kind of where I and, and maybe some other people, uh, including uh, Dom Lucijan and Scott Wheeler, wrote a great breakdown of this with kind of point by point game tape in the Athletic is. That I think the things that Jones does really well look amazing and they stand out. And like I said, the commentator's on him all the time and, and it makes you take notice. And when you have a defensive or defenseman who kind of has the skill set that he does and he's doing a lot of stuff, it's really going to stake out. You're really going to come away thinking that, oh, that guy's like the best defenseman in the NHL, especially like he does it. He plays so many minutes that you're also seeing him so much. Um, yes. But when it really comes down to it and kind of the argument that I make in, in the piece that, that's included in this book uh, is that the, the stuff that he does isn't necessarily what I would call efficient. Like it really is not stuff that y- you really draw a straight line and say, that's what helps his team win. Uh, so for example, like what I said before, uh, you know, like he's super noticeable in the defensive zone. He's running around behind the net. He's like cross-checking Austin Matthews in the back. He's like doing all this stuff. He's in puck battles. He's running around. Uh, but you kind of back up and you say, oh, like he's doing that in, in the defensive zone a lot because the Leafs have possession of the puck a lot. And, and that's what you're noticing. And, and the puck isn't necessarily going the other way as a result of this. You know, it might be going back to the point and being cycled a little bit more. But but at the end of the day, you know, a lot of this stuff is happening with this physicality and boxing out because the puck's not getting out of the zone. Uh, And in fact, Seth Jones this year actually was pretty mediocre in terms of how often he dumped the puck out of the, uh, out of the defensive zone, which isn't generally what you'd expect a a defenseman of his skill set to do. Uh, Another thing like that is, and I'm sure anybody who watched that Toronto series would remember, uh, and and the Tampa Bay series as well, is that he loves carrying the puck into the offensive zone. That's like his favorite thing to do. And it looks amazing because he's, he's big, but he's a confident skater. He has great puck control skills. And so you see this, this, big defenseman bearing down across the line, carrying it into the zone, you know, maybe he kind of chucks the puck to the middle or, or does all these kinds of things. And you think, wow, like that is so impressive that he was doing all this stuff defensively. And now he's doing this offensively, but, and, and one, and this is kind of something that's consistently stood out to me with players is that defensemen entering the zone with possession of the puck is not necessarily what you want to happen because a lot of the time those defensemen, really don't know what to do with the puck once they get into the zone. And a lot of the time, those kinds of plays are one and done. And the result with Jones, a lot of the time, as as Dom and Scott kind of got into with game tape, is that a lot of the time it would leave his partner and the Jackets kind of scrambling to deal with a counterattack and Jones would be caught up the ice, which really kind of contradicts the reputation that Jones has as the stingy defensive defenseman. Uh, But then, you know, Jones gets back into the defensive zone, starts, you know, Battling and stuff and, and it's quickly forgotten but it really is kind of that type of thing and like there's more stuff than that but those are kind of two things that stick out on top of how he has kind of a soft gap he lets people get into the zone off the rush you know he, he prefers to protect the middle but the result is that he gives a possession and, and things like that and and those kind of little things aren't necessarily things that are going to stick out to you you're going to remember the stuff that he did and the stuff that he did looked amazing and and But when you kind of back up and look at the results and and how it helped the Blue Jackets win, you're going to see that it maybe didn't have the effect that that you're expecting. So, you know, like that's an example. That's something that I am in the the huge minority on. And I recognize that I'm not going to be changing too many minds anytime soon. But that's kind of an (laughs) example of of, of, of a situation where you can look at the combination of kind of the micro stats, the game tape and the macro stats and form kind of a full vision of a player that you wouldn't necessarily get from looking at any of them by themselves.
0: Yeah. So, so and, and another player that I think is worth kind of talking about in the same division that I think you started to see the analytics crowd uh, be joined increasingly by the the kind of hockey commentariat, I guess is the word I'm going to use is, uh, is a player like Dougie Hamilton, who I know was tremendously divisive, but you look at the underlying numbers for Dougie Hamilton and, defensively they're not perfect and I know that your article kind of got into that but it's kind of interesting to kind of contrast those two players in that Dougie Hamilton also is a very clearly dynamic player but it seems like he does stuff that leads to a little bit more direct offense and goals
1: yeah so like, like Dougie does some things that look wonky I mean like he's like six foot six he's not like you know, he, he's not kind of as beautiful a skater as, as Jones is, at least not moving forward. You know, he'll occasionally make some defensive hiccups because he's an offensive defenseman. Uh, but th- the way that he kind of maintains possession and, and the way he does it is kind of by shooting the pucks just so often and shooting it from anywhere and getting into position to shoot it from anywhere. You know, like these are the kinds of things that, that lead to real results and, and lead to great results at both ends of the ice. And, you know, what I got from watching him was that, you know, I, I didn't think necessarily that he was as good a defensive player in zone as the analytics might lead you to believe because the analytics kind of, he looks great at both ends of the ice. Um, but And I think that this is kind of you know a situation where that kind of eye test analysis can t- take you in a good direction because the reason the analytics say that he's great defensively is because his partners do a hell of a lot worse defensively when they're not with him. So like Jacob Slavin and Mark Giordano, are kind of his main two partners that he's had in the past couple of years have much worse defensive results without Dougie Hamilton. But I mean, you're not going to say that Dougie Hamilton is the defensive conscience on a Slavin pairing or on a Giordano <laughs> pairing. But the re- but the reason for it is that they complement each other so well, where Dougie is able to kind of do the offense thing, and and Slavin or Giordano are, are able to kind of hang back and they fit together super well. But if you were kind of to take Hamilton and put him with like Morgan Riley, you know, he's not going to have great defensive results in that situation. It really is kind of one of those areas where you have to figure out how guys kind of click and how those numbers might change in a different situation.
0: Yeah, so I think kind of backing up to a team level, because I asked that question and now now you got me curious about the Carolina Hurricanes. And I know that you've mostly been focused on player, you know, at least in your writing, have been mostly focused on more player-specific analysis, but it seems like what Carolina is doing in terms of kind of playing up to F.O. hockey and I guess being the analytic darlings, although you can kind of argue that a little bit either way, I, I'm kind of curious. You've now watched, I'm sure, a lot of hockey, and there's another team that we're going to talk about later that I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about, but do you think there's something that Carolina is doing that maybe we're all not picking up on? And if so, the results kind of haven't quite been there really, except for one Eastern Conference Finals run. So I'm kind of curious
1: what your thoughts are on Carolina. Yeah, so there's two things on Carolina. The first one is that one of the more entertaining things that kind of happened was I, before the playoffs started, I wrote this piece using Corey's data, which was uh, basically like breaking down the playoff teams in terms of like six microstats. So it was things like, you know, ranking the teams in terms of, you know, how many possession entries... Or like their their dump out rate and things like that, just to kind of get a sense for how these different teams played going into things, and and I would kind of use these quotes from past analytical studies to like explain why each concept was important. And so, one of the things I would do, for example, would I I you know find a study from like hockey graphs or something like that on the importance of entering the zone with possession of the puck, and I would quote the person and I'd say, well, you'll see that you know, the Rangers dump it in, but the lightning, like, well, actually the lightning dump it in, but, you know, stuff like that. And and one of the quotes I found to support the possession entry thing was from uh, a hockey analytics blogger known as Eric Tulsky.
0: Uh, <laughs> I've heard of that but name I, somewhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, and so I said, you know, so uh, to cite Eric Tolsky, uh entries with possession end up leading to a scoring chance, like 70% of the time, whereas uncontrolled entries... Uh, and then proceeded to explain that the Carolina Hurricanes had finished like third last in possession entries. So it was definitely a... Uh, that's
0: fascinating to me, isn't it? <laughs> a bit of a contradiction
1: there, yeah. Um, so that was definitely interesting. Uh, so, so that's one thing that kind of stood out. Like I, when I was kind of going through there, I, I, I would have expected to see the Hurricanes kind of high in all of those kind of micro stack categories, and that wasn't necessarily true. I think that when it comes to the finishing thing, Um, I always kind of wonder with teams that don't have super great finishing numbers, um, especially compared to like expected goals and stuff like that, uh, and and Corsi as well. um, They always seem to be teams that generate mostly off the cycle. Um, And and a a big reason for that is that.
0: For that, for instance.
1: Vegas is a perfect example of that, maybe like the perfect example. Montreal is also a great example. They don't do a lot off the rush. Uh, Los Angeles is a big cycle team. They were a big possession team this year that, that didn't have the goals go in either. Um, and, and Carolina has always been kind of that team as well. And, and they generate a lot off the cycle. And I think Dougie Hamilton is, is a big part of their cycle attack. And, and you can see diminishing returns on that because, you know, those rebounds like might just be compounding and not going in. But I think another thing that people have to remember is that, you know, one of the flaws of expected gold models is that there's limitations in terms of what can be tracked in terms of, you know, how an expected goal is is being calculated. And one of the biggest issues is that we don't really have a perfect way of figuring out what chances were coming off the rush, uh, whether chances were on odd man rushes or breakaways or things like that. And so it's kind of baked in overall where, you know, certain chances in aggregate might even out. But if you have a team that's playing overwhelmingly off the rush, then they might be finishing above expected because of that. Uh, Or conversely, if you have a team that's working overwhelmingly off the cycle, their finishing numbers might be below for that reason as well. And so I've always kind of wondered, and I haven't been able to really dive too deeply into this, and, and it would be kind of a tricky thing to do without having access to all that extensive kind of sport logic type data but
0: yeah
1: whether if you were looking at a list of teams based on how they generate offense whether it's off the rush or off the cycle whether you would see tampa montreal carolina vegas los angeles on one end and then like tampa colorado like those teams that finish really well and then vancouver probably being another one on the other end there so so that's kind of something that i've wondered about the hurricanes
0: and I, i kind of want to i mean this is technically a nominally a Washington Capitals podcast, so I do have to ask my standard Washington Capitals question. But I'm, I think I'm going to kind of try to fit it in with a little bit of what we were saying. And you always look every year at Don Lischis and kind of breaking down each team by you know the advanced stats and trying to kind of use his own model to rank teams. And in, in invariably, whenever he gets to the Washington Capitals section, the the language in Always seems to go well. The Washington Capitals are weird, <laughs> and because the Washington Capitals continually don't look great on advanced goal metrics. They and you talk to a lot of Capitals fans, and they'll note maybe it's what's going on before the shot in terms of cross line passes or something that Washington is kind of famously innovated. So, or not innovated, but use a lot. So, I guess I'm kind of curious where. What What do you think are the flaws with advanced models and kind of how they track the capitals or is there just something that maybe we're just waiting for a fall that's going to be coming at some point. Yeah.
1: I I don't know. Like, like that thing, you know, like I said, it it might have something to do with stuff off the rush. It might be a, a pre shot movement thing, or it might just be that the capitals have certain players who are really, really good at scoring goals. Uh, you know, like, like, like Ovechkin, I don't think it's too wild to say that he's probably a, a pretty safe bet to score above expectation. I, I, I think,
0: I think he's uh, pretty good at that
1: whole <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, that, that's, you know, I'm a Penguins fan, so I can't be too complimentary, but I think it's fair to say that he's an above average shooter. Uh, you know, like guys like Kuznetsov and stuff, you know, and, and, and I think that the issue with the Capitals when you look at them analytically, and, and this is definitely something that I've seen, is that the bottom of their lineup, like the analytics love it. Yes. <laughs> like, like, like I like to the extent that like, I literally was going to write an entire piece and it still might uh, uh, called what does elite penalty killing look like where I just isolated on Garnet Hathaway for yep. a couple of games and figured out what the <laughs> hell he was doing. You know, like, if you look I, like, like a uh, uh, panic uh, uh, Hathaway is a good example, you know, Travis, uh, Carl Barley, Hadlan, you know, is another good example. The, like you was just great defensive results at the bottom of the lineup. And then you go to uh on the defense and, Guys like are just have ridiculous numbers, and then at the top of the lineup, you're seeing guys who have just really unremarkable numbers, like like Kuznetsov. His defensive numbers are awful. His play-driving numbers have dipped quite a bit. Uh, you know, Ovechkin obviously his defense isn't isn't anything to write home about, but his play-driving is is not what he used to be when he was younger. Uh, Backstrom, kind of similar situation. You know, and and theoretically, you see this team and you're like, oh, like these, these expected goal numbers are really dipping and the defense is a huge problem. Like is, is everything going to be okay? And then the goals just happen. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> it really is kind of, you know, the question would be theoretically, like, is that because of what they're doing before the shot gets taken? Or is it just, these guys are really good at scoring goals and without kind of access to stores of private data, there's no way to know for sure. But I, I think it is kind of a safe guess to say that if your model is based on expected goals alone, you're probably going to underestimate the capitals. Uh, and, and, you know, which is one of the reasons that I, I use kind of a, a more war-based model that that uses goals for as an input rather than, uh, rather than relying on that.
0: Yeah. And I, 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 we talk about kind of being humble and everything like that. And I think that's one thing that you do a good job of is, I mean, at the end of the result, at the end of the kind of thing here, there's going to be stuff that we don't pick up on. And so having the actual for and against goals is going to be important, if anything, just to keep us kind of in, in some kind of plane of reality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's always going to be uncertainty. And, and honestly, like, you know, some people find that to be kind of a downfall of of analytics or or, a reason that they're not too into it. But I mean, in my opinion, it's a lot more interesting that there is kind of this uncertainty than if everything was totally assured and, and teams just kind of plugged in players like they were playing, you know, EA sports franchise mode.
0: Yeah, agreed, and And I think it, 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 it's kind of exciting because you compare a hockey to a base. I So I come from baseball and you compare a hockey to a baseball where baseball is, I think it's a combination of they've been at it for longer for baseball, but also I think baseball is just frankly a little bit easier in the sense of hitting and pitching to analyze. And so I, I personally, I just find that really exciting. The idea that there's a lot of hockey that we, you know, don't know and don't, you know, and are still kind of learning about how to properly analyze. Um, And speaking of things that we don't know and learning how to properly analyze, uh, I'm going to take a quick break. And then on the other side, I got uh, some more questions for Jack here about uh, Colorado and uh, Jack Johnson. So uh, stay tuned. Welcome back to J.F. Radio still here with Jack and uh, Jack, I want to ask you about college. And Because having read your 152-page book, I believe, uh, one thing that I was interested in is you talked a lot about, we talked about Carolina and kind of digging into what made them interesting. And one thing that I saw, I, I, don't, I think you only did a couple of Colorado players, but it, it's interesting to kind of see that Colorado seems like they're at the forefront of a lot of the Maybe I wouldn't say analytics movement, but in terms of picking players and really knowing how to develop and pick interesting players that really fit well in their lineup. So I'm kind of curious, how do you compartmentalize what a team like Colorado is doing and maybe where are they looking where other teams should?
1: Yeah, well, there's kind of two things analytically that that I find appealing about Colorado. The first one is I I mentioned that piece that I did where I looked at the micro stats and kind of ranked teams in there. And Colorado is is at the top in kind of every, like, you know, forward-looking analytical microstat category. Like, they are entering the zone with possession of the puck. They are exiting the zone with possession of the puck. Like, they are, like, all the stuff that you, like, want a team to be doing in terms of, you know, like the, the analytical outcomes or whatever. Like, that is the way that Colorado plays. And, and they get to do that because of all the skilled players they have. But I think it's still noteworthy that, like, they are a team that is kind of fully committed to – like we are not going to be a dump and chase team. Like we are going to do like the skill zone entries and stuff like that. And and I think, in a lot of ways, in doing that, they are kind of they have kind of become the team that everyone envisions Toronto as being. Uh, but obviously, they've had a little bit more success in terms of getting uh, past the the first round and and being able to put some results together. Uh, in terms of player identification, uh, I mean that's a, a thing, like 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 I think is is pretty clear. Like player analysis is kind of the thing that I find the most interesting about hockey analytics uh, and, and the way that the Avalanche have been able to recognize players who are, who are undervalued uh, who, or who weren't being deployed correctly uh, or who they could get on the cheap, I think has been very impressive. And, and maybe has led to them having the best offseason in the NHL this summer, uh, which, which I think is, it's just the situation of the rich getting richer. Yes. I mean, in the, <laughs> So in the, in the book, I, I have a, a chapter on uh, uh, Valeri Nichushkin, who is a guy who they got as a project signing last year, who had very good defensive numbers in Dallas and really bad offensive numbers. Um, and, and I think digging into it, I found that a big part of that is because he was allowed to do some things uh, from a defensive perspective that he was really suited for. Uh, You know, like like the kind of defensive play that happens in the offensive zone in terms of, you know, you're kind of wasting time a little bit. So you're retrieving pucks and and winning puck battles and protecting the puck and things like that stuff that kind of takes the seconds off the clock while you're in the offensive zone and keeps it out of the defensive end, which has great, uh, great dividends uh, in terms of your defensive results. Um, But, but one thing that it wasn't able to do in Dallas was carry the puck into the offensive zone. And Nichushkin has always been a skilled player. Like like his, he plays the way that his scouting reports read, uh, which I don't think is a thing that you would necessarily think based on how he was kind of always talked about as this big bust. But he's he's speedy. He has really great puck skills, uh, and and he plays with kind of a grit and like four, hard hard edge forechecking game, and putting him into the Avalanche system kind of allowed him to do everything that he had the potential to do. And it led to what was a really impressive season for a for a bottom six player. Uh, and then this summer, they kind of pick up, you know, Brandon Saad, who's kind of been one of the best play drivers in the league for the past couple of years, uh, even if the goals haven't necessarily always gone in for, for him and his teammates. Uh, and then Devon Taves, who is like, if you wanted to pick like the analytics pick for the most underrated defenseman, it would be Devon Taves. Like what, what he was able to oh, do is kind of one of the few puck moving defensemen in uh, the Islanders uh, blue line for the past two years has been remarkable. And they were able to get him for what amounted to, I think two second round picks. So like, that is just smart player evaluation. And and I can only believe that it is only the reason because uh, one of their analytics guys, uh, Eric Parnas follows me on Twitter. So I, I think, he just, he reads <laughs> what I say. You're and just and dropping just brings, all
0: the knowledge and he's picking up. Yeah,
1: he, exactly. He brings it directly to Joe Sackick. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, when they signed Taves, my first response is just, okay. Like that's just, or when they traded for Taves, sorry, I it's like, okay, that's just that's cruel. Ridiculous. Like, come on. <laughs> that's just not fair.
0: What is he going to be like the third pairing defenseman maybe the <laughs> same? So many, it's
1: ridiculous. I don't know. Yeah. They have a, they have an embarrassment of riches there. I I, I do wonder whether Seattle might be uh something that they have to keep in consideration, whether they have to give up him or, or Graves or somebody else. But sure, yeah, sure. I, I, I am very excited to see. And, and like I said, you know, they're a big possession uh, puck moving team and that's exactly the game he plays. And he didn't quite get to play it as much as he would have when he was on the Island. So it will be exciting to see what he's able to do in the, in that kind of forward looking progressive Colorado system.
0: Absolutely. And then uh, the inverse of what Colorado is doing is uh I'm just going to say, this is what my question says on my notes, and I'm just going to say it. Why does Jack Johnson still get jobs? And you might not be able to answer that directly because uh, you don't work for a team. But I I guess maybe I'll frame it this way. We've talked a little bit about players that do things that maybe catch executives' eyes that maybe don't directly lead to uh, results of the ice or anything like that. I, so, I guess I'm kind of curious. How do you think of a player like Jack Johnson and why he's still um, getting regular minutes at an NHL level?
1: Yeah. So, like, like I said earlier uh, regarding Jones, uh, if, if you watch him play and think that he's a top five defensive in the league, I don't blame you for a second. With Jack Johnson, the notion that he ever had a good eye test. When he was with the Penguins, always just completely blew my mind.
0: Yeah, you're a Penguins fan. You you saw that in depth. <laughs> yeah, b- b-
1: people would always make that point. You know, beat reporters would always say, you know, well, the stats say this, but he's provided, you know, and it's like, if you like if you watch him play, even with an open mind, even if you gave him like a, a different jersey, like just a blank jersey, you would know that it was Jack Johnson. You would know that bad things are happening. But but I will say, there's a underrated skill for NHL defenseman. And it is the skill of being able to be trusted by your coach to the extent that you will always be played in a more elevated role than you deserve. There there are guys who just have it. And, you know, Cody CeCe has it. uh, And then Jack Johnson absolutely has it. And there's just, there's something about him. I don't know if it's practice habits or the way he plays or penalty killing or shot blocking or what, but whatever it is, like he will be played in a top four. Like there is just no getting around it and I, I believe that he will find his way onto a top-four pairing with, in, with the New York Rangers sooner rather than later. That's just the way things go with him. I
0: guess it's kind I, of the I, poor getting poorer, at least, with the Rangers and their uh, really uh, stellar defensive play last year. Uh, the, the sarcasm here being uh, that the Rangers, I think, and I would imagine you're, you're with me on this, were probably I, – I, I guess they weren't probably the worst defensive team, but they were, I think, probably somewhere in the bottom.
1: Yeah, they were. I think they were bottom three or so, and they might even have been. It might have been kind of just Chicago below them. They were. They yeah, were that Chicago. Bad. And, I think uh,
0: Winnipeg maybe is in that range or something. You know, but
1: yeah. And yeah, and it, you know, like you you try to figure out a way to fit Johnson onto that blue line, and any way that you do it is appalling. Like either he, <laughs> either he is going to ruin Adam Fox, which I would never forgive him for, mm-hmm. uh, or he's going to pair with Tony D'Angelo, and that is just going to be a defensive nightmare. Uh, or it's going to be him and Libor Hayek or Brendan Smith. And like, those are two very poor defensemen to begin with, especially Hayek, I think was arguably one of the few defensemen last year who was even worse than Johnson. So like that, like either way. And, and I, I did a kind of thing a couple of days ago that was kind of revisiting something that I had put together when he was still on the penguins. But if you take kind of his splits uh, on and off the ice with the Penguins star players, especially Sidney Crosby last year, it is, it's staggering just how much a bottom pairing defenseman can negatively impact the guys in front of him. Like in, in terms of the the on-ice kind of goals for and goals against, like when Johnson and Crosby were separated, like if it's just Sid without Johnson, he could be playing with Latang. he would be playing with Chad Ruedel. Overall, they it was as though the Tampa Bay Lightning were on the ice. I think they got like 57% of the goals, which is like where the Lightning were. And then when Sid <laughs> and Johnson were together, it was the Detroit Red Wings. Like they got 35% of the goals for it. So it's it, impressive it
0: was, to make in a, in a bizarre way that can make Sidney Crosby uh, equivalent the to a Detroit Wings. Red Wings team.
1: Yeah, and and like, and like like that's a Detroit Red Wings team that like got unlucky with goaltending too. Like this is like even maybe worse than like the Red Wings were genuinely.
0: Like it, it really
1: <laughs> is like, if you can turn Sidney Crosby into the 2020 Detroit Red Wings there, you shouldn't be like coaching at the NHL level, let alone playing, but, but here we are. So I am glad that he went in division as I'm sure you are as well. I mean, you know, like, like I do have, like, there is kind of a part of me that has like, you know, I guess sympathy might be pushing it because he made more money last year than, than I'll make probably ever in my life. But at the same time, like in the cover of my book, it pictures me, uh, turned away from the ice because obviously I would never watch the games in a million years, uh, on a computer, but I am wearing a Jack Johnson Jersey just to uh, commemorate my, my favorite ex-Penguin.
0: There you go. There you go. Well, I think there's uh, something coming full circle there a little bit. So I, you know, we've, we've been, uh, we've been here for a little bit. So I, I want to conclude by saying, by asking you this, you are a penguin fan and uh, we have to, we do have to get into this. This is a Washington Capitals podcast. Um, so I, I, this isn't going to be the question that you think I'm going to ask. It's going to be something, I think, a little more tame. I, I'm, ca- I'm kind of curious. There's been a lot of talk with Penguins fans and Capitals fans about the quote-unquote championship window. And I guess I'm kind of curious where you feel like the Penguins and the Capitals are kind of in that pantheon. Or is that maybe just a flawed way for us to look at you know, teams and their kind of competitive cycle?
1: So, I think it's fair to say that that champion windows do exist, but I think that we should conceive of them maybe more broadly than we do and and I think this this doesn't really apply to the penguins and capitals just because like the capitals and penguins are kind of the case studies that that prove that we should think about the championship window differently. Yes. like the, I think the, the pens and capitals are undeniably kind of at the end of when they're going to be competing for cups for the time being. Maybe they're going to prove me totally wrong, but but I think it's probably safe to say that Jake Enslin and Jakob Verana aren't going to be franchise players for their respective teams moving forward. Uh, But I I think that the the Penguins and Capitals, I think, provide some good evidence that when teams talk about maximizing their championship window, as though the guys who they have who are 22 have like five years to win is ridiculous. Uh, And and the (laughs) Penguins and Capitals are perfect evidence of that where like we're still talking about the Penguins and Capitals as being teams that can compete for a cup over the next three years or so, you know, I mean, Sid and and Ovi are going to be in their late thirties by the time that window comes up. And, And these teams have been competing in the Penguins case since 2007 in the Capitals case since 2008, you know, like that, we're talking about like 13, 14, 15 years of a championship window. Yeah. And so when you hear Leafs fans or Canucks fans or even Avalanche fans talk about, Oh, like we, like our window is now, like we need to go all in, you know, that's that's there's an extent to which you can go all in in terms of you know you trade assets like futures for good assets now that that can give you a couple good years worth of, of stuff like your phil kessels or your tj oshis but at the same time you need to be ready to put together a sustainable cup window that is going to last you a decade because there's good reason to believe that it's going to be a decade the yeah. lightning the sharks famous and capitals and it might not
0: even be i, I say this as a capital saying that the team that won the cup was not their best roster like it definitely wasn't yeah. and I mean, they're a the team that had just lost nate schmidt and marcus johansson and you're just like So sometimes yeah. hockey is just that's the beauty of it right is that sometimes it's weird and you don't know what's going to work in the playoffs you don't know when Devonte smith Kelly is going to inexplicably score seven goals or yeah all and you then, know gonna stumble upon a line that is basically
1: unstoppable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You give yourself as many lottery chips as possible. And, and, you know, sometimes you're the Sharks and it doesn't work out. But, you know, a lot of the times you're the Lightning or the Capitals or the Penguins. And and if if the Leafs or or uh, Oilers or Canucks are, are thinking of things in terms of, okay, like we have to win while these guys are cheap or whatever, they're not going to win because they're going to find themselves in a situation where their window uh, involuntarily closes a hell of a lot earlier than it should. And uh, and that's not good news for anybody. So, yeah, I I think the payments capitals are perfect reasons of why championship windows inarguably do exist, but they are a hell of a lot longer than you might think they are. And you should prepare to try to compete sustainably.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, Jack, this is awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people uh, find your various uh, works and uh, where can people find the uh, the book that you uh, that you just wrote?
1: Yeah, I'll start with that. So I just dropped a collection today. Like you said, it's about 150 pages. It's a collection of 18 uh, player deep dives using analytics and the eye test. Uh, all things that I've kind of written in the past kind of six months or so uh, using that broad variety of analytics as well as kind of game tape observations. Uh, I just dropped that today. Uh, it's on Gumroad. I, I, I don't know the link off by heart and I don't think anybody would be able to remember it. It's on my Twitter. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and you can get it there. So it's $5 and up, but uh, all the proceeds for it are going to a local charity here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, which focuses on on youth housing and, and programming. Uh, and, and they do really great work. And, and hopefully we can get them a little bit of money uh, before the holidays, because obviously this is a, a tricky time for, for charities and nonprofits to be working. So we've already, I, I launched the book about three hours ago. And, and the last time I checked, it's, we've already raised about $200. So things awesome. are... are going pretty well there and, and hopefully that'll only get better outside of that uh if you want to give money to an even more worthy cause than vulnerable children uh my patreon is, uh,
0: <laughs> is five
1: dollars a month the hell of uh, a transition there that was yeah yeah so if, if you're if you're looking for you know things like data visualizations and stuff like that maybe the player cards you might have seen on twitter you can get full access to those and a bunch of other toys like roster builders and things like that. uh, That's $5 a month. Uh, And then if, if what we talked about with the writing is interesting to you, or if you want a comment section where you can yell at me about the Seth Jones piece, that is all on substack.jfresh.com, I believe. So you can uh, find me on there and and shoot me out.
0: There you go. There you go. And uh, joining, joining the, uh, the uh, parade of smart people that have, that have gone to substack. So that's uh, good to see. So, uh, Jack, this, this was great. Uh, we're going to, I definitely want to have you on again. This was, uh, this was a delight. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yep. Happy holidays. Yeah. Happy
0: holidays.